Welcome, everyone. So, are you tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Well, you've come to the right place. Here, we cut through the world of surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths. Here, we dive into the dark waters where strange creatures move. Here, we're free to be that foolish knight who lunges at windmills and who lights up the world with his magical vision. It's all too much, says George Harrison. Well, that's true. But all the more reason to jump into it and intoxicate yourself with life's infinite profusion. After all, you don't discover new lands by sticking close to the shore, do you? This is the wisdom of. And coming up, the great Herman Hesse and his journey to the East. Okay, hi everyone. So, the more um, entertaining half of this podcast couldn't uh, make it in today. But, um, hey, you know, the show must go on, right? So, um, you're, you're stuck with me for this episode. Okay, so, before I start, I just want to say a, a few brief words, unrelated to, to the topic today. It's about um, Ukraine. So, the, the tragic situation in Ukraine has reminded us that um, no one's immune from malevolent actors and, and forces in the world. It reminds us that um, despite our, our perceived security and comfort, it's still very possible to, to wake up in the morning one day and have our, our world turned upside down because of the, the whims of a dictator. At the same time, though, the, the, the Ukrainians, in their fight against this malevolence, Show us what, what courage and integrity really means. They're, they're a true testament to the um, invincible human spirit. A spirit that stays strong and, and knows that no matter how dark and how long the night gets, it will pass and the sun will eventually rise. Ukraine, we, we all stand in solidarity with you. Okay, so let's get to the topic at hand. So, first, and as usual, a brief summary. So, Journey to the East is a novel written by the, the German author, Hermann Hesse. It was first published in um, 1932. Journey to the East is written from the point of view of a man called H.H., who becomes a, a member of what's known as the League a branch of which goes on a pilgrimage to the East in search of the ultimate truth. Hess wrote many incredible novels, including the likes of uh, Siddhartha and Steppenwolf. He won the, the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1946. Okay, well, you know, without the, uh, the usual uh, somewhat strange comments or, or questions I get, I'm not sure where I should start today. Well, you know what? Why don't I start 
with one of the most obvious and striking things about this story, namely the the character and the role of someone called Leo. All right, so so who's Leo? Well, Leo is the uh, central character of the story, and he's someone who accompanies the group of men who are who are called the League on their journey to the east. But here's the important thing: he accompanies them as their well as their servant. I mean. He basically takes orders from the men and does all of their um, menial chores. And though he's respected by others in the group, he's essentially ignored by them. Now, in terms of his own character, Leo is described as um, natural, friendly, quiet, and, and an unassuming person. Okay, so but what happens next? Well, eventually what happens is that Leo all of a sudden disappears. And despite all their searching, just isn't to be found anywhere. The faithful servant of the group is gone. Now, when this happens, the the initially confident group of men grow to feel increasingly hopeless. They begin to um, question themselves and their direction. And eventually, turning away from each other, the entire group falls into disarray. At which point they, um, they abandon the journey altogether. As the, uh, the narrator writes, quote, When Leo left us, it was as if the lifeblood of our group flowed away from an invisible wound. The cohesion of the group was completely gone with Leo's departure. Now, here's the shocking thing. What the narrator, who again was part of the group, what he discovers many years later is that Leo was in fact the head or president of the very league to which the men belonged. And his um, exodus from the group was intentional. In other words, the man who he had first known as the um, unassuming servant was in reality a great noble leader who was teaching a lesson. Okay, so, well, what's the lesson or the message in all of this? Well, part of it might have something to do with the importance of, of a different kind of leadership. I mean, think about it. What does it say that without Leo's um, unassuming presence, but also unifying nature, that the travelers, without him, fall into disarray? Well, it says that without someone who's uh, selfless, without someone who's willing to uh, sacrifice their own interests and their ego for the sake of the larger group and the quest, the group and the quest get completely lost and fall apart. Actually, you know, now that I think about it, there was somebody called um, Robert Greenleaf who talked about something he, uh, he coined servant leadership. And actually, he used Leo in Journey to the East as his prime example or model. Okay, so what he basically says is that in this type of leadership style, the most important thing is to serve first, not just directly lead from the get-go. And part of the reason for that is that usually people who just need to lead others do it because they need to satisfy their desire for power. Actually, you know, that makes me think a little of what Machiavelli says about how to be a great ruler in his book, The Prince, written in, um, I think, 1513. Essentially, um, what he says there is that if you want to be a successful leader, it's better to be cruel and to be feared than it is to be loved. And um, the Carthaginian general, Hannibal, is one of the examples he uses. 
Now, part of the reason that Machiavelli thinks this is because you can't really control whether or not you're loved. I mean, that depends on your subjects. But you can control being feared. And you do this by threatening punishment, of course. But the point is that instilling fear is something that's of your own doing and so doesn't rest with others. Only this way can you build up real power, Machiavelli thinks. Now, I think what's partly behind all of this is the thought that being genuinely good, being um, virtuous, is just really going to prove to be a weakness in the end. Like um, Callicles says in one of Plato's great dialogues, a great individual will simply be trampled on if he follows the virtues of morality. Okay, so, I mean, clearly Leo and Greenleaf disagree with this stuff. That is, they don't think servant-style leadership is going to prove weak. And that's partly because the, the big difference between someone who needs to outright rule and the one who takes the, the servant-first approach is that the the servant-first approach wants to make sure that other people's needs are met so that the the people they're working with become wiser, freer, and more autonomous. And is there a better way to ensure success than that? Actually, you know, it's interesting. At one point in the story, Leo praises mothers. He says about them that when they've borne their children and given them their milk and beauty and strength, that they themselves become insignificant and no one asks about them anymore. Well, that was what Leo himself was trying to do. Namely, to be a selfless leader whose actions were grounded in service to others, making everyone stronger as a result. Okay, well, um, what's next? Well, okay, so here's something interesting. So apparently Hess had a great fondness for the, for the Catholic mystic St. Francis of Assisi. So much so, in fact, that he, he may have based Leo in part on him. So then, what does that tell us about the kind of outlook that resonated with Hess? And, and what's more, what does it tell us about Leo the character? Well, let me start by saying something about uh, St. Francis's view first. And actually, you know what? Maybe the, the best way of doing that is by first saying something about the, the larger Judeo-Christian view on animals. Okay, so many have interpreted the Judeo-Christian view as one that promotes dominion over all creatures and the, and the greater natural world too. I mean, in Genesis, God does say, Let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds in the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth. Now, many thinkers have criticized this approach, calling it um, anthropocentric. And here the, um, the influential contemporary philosopher Peter Singer comes to mind especially. Singer takes this uh, Judeo-Christian tradition, which he says has become the dominant view today, even if we don't realize it, to basically be the view that the, the natural world exists entirely for the benefit of human beings. 
that it has no value apart from its use and convenience for us. Okay, but so why am I talking about this? Well, because St. Francis, again, whom Leo appears to be in part based on, was someone who seemed to provide an alternative model of human interaction with other living species. Something that comes out not only in his own behavior, but also in his, um, in his poem, The Canticle of the Creatures. What comes across is an interaction not based on um, dominion and, uh, and a kind of mastery over animals, but one based on love and equality. I mean, it's incredible the kind of connection that St. Francis had with, with animals. For example, it was said that, that birds made nests in his hands, that he called pheasants and fish his brothers, and that he blessed hares and formed a, a covenant of friendship with eagles. And again, this intense devotion to and, and love for animals, and this uh, fraternity with them, this all seems to amount to a, a radical departure from the dominion over animals view described in Genesis, right? And, by the way, Leo, too, is made by Hess to also have a very similar connection to animals. I mean, among other things, we're told that Leo was able to um, tame angry dogs and attract all sorts of butterflies around him. Anyway, actually, you know, now that I think about it, St. Francis's approach reminds me a bit of, of what's called the um, biocentrist view. So, biocentrism is, a, is an environmental view, or, or a set of them, that developed in the um, 1980s. And it's basically the idea that all living things have some sort of um, intrinsic value. It takes its center of moral concern to be life in general, bios in Greek, not just human beings. Anthropos in Greek, hence uh, anthropocentrism. So, biocentrists, as far as I understand, argue that anything that's alive has an interest in staying alive, in, um, in being healthy, and in growing in a way that's proper to its biological type. So, animals clearly have such an interest, but according to the biocentrists, so does something like, um, like I don't know, uh, like a rose bush. So for the for the biocentrist, to burn a rose bush is to, well, harm the plant's well-being. And that's because it's naturally orientated towards living and maintaining its its proper form. It um it wants to realize itself or 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 pursue its own good, so to speak. So in this way you could say that the plant has, well, that it has interests. Even if, um, weirdly enough, it has no subjective experiences, but interests that we should nevertheless take into account and respect. So, whether it's a tree, a flower, or a tiny earthworm, the upshot of it is that the biocentrist approach allows many more entities into the moral community. In other words, humans aren't the only things that matter morally. No, According to the biocentrists, animals matter too. And indeed, every part of creation that's alive in the biological sense. Okay, well, both St. Francis and Leo 
seem to hold to something approximating this, this kind of view. They appear, that is, to, to see intrinsic value in all living things and, and believe that we ought to respect those values, even if um, such doctrines aren't made explicit by them. Maybe another way of putting it is that they just seem to see nature and life, all of creation, as sacred, and therefore, to some extent, as um, untouchable. Okay, now, you know, having said all this, I I do want to briefly raise an objection here. Because, actually, I'm not sure I entirely agree with with this view that, strictly speaking, St. Francis recognizes intrinsic value in all life. You see, I actually think St. Francis loves animals not purely for themselves, but rather because, well, because they're part of God's creation. That is, as much as he respects and values animals, I I don't think that he ultimately celebrates animals for their own sake, in their own particularity. No, I think that ultimately he praises them for what what they point to, which is to something outside of themselves, to God. So, while I don't deny that he finds animals and all of creation sacred, I'm not entirely convinced that he sees in them an autonomous worth and a beauty completely onto themselves. Okay, so finally, I want to explore one more question. And it's this. So what does this journey to the East mean exactly? What does um, going East symbolize? I mean... It's easy to say it's about um, enlightenment, right? That sort of a backpacking trip that many of us Westerners take. Now, obviously something about this is true. But it's a bit facile, a bit um, superficial. So, first of all, I don't think Hess means for the East here to refer to the, to the literal East. No, I, I think he means something bigger and deeper than this. So, okay, we have to remember that Hess, before sitting down to write this novel, had just lived through through World War I in Germany. He had witnessed wars, millions of deaths, and maybe most importantly of all, absolute mindless nationalism, where, where nationality became more important than solidarity between human beings, where um, statehood trumped the common bond between people. Okay, so again, what does going east in the novel signify exactly then? Well, notice something important. Notice that in the story, the League, which the narrator belongs to, and a part of which is going on that pilgrimage to the, to the east, is in fact a much larger, timeless, religious sect whose members include both famous fictional and real characters, such as um, Plato. Mozart, Pythagoras, Don Quixote, and Baudelaire. Now, of course, this is all a bit uh, fantastical, but it makes the message all the more clear, I think. And that's that going east is really about the coming together of people from, from various cultures and times. And not only that, but it's also about the drawing forth from the riches of both the east and the west. It's about um, retrieving the, the deepest wisdom from all of history and then bringing it all together. 
East then is, is really a metaphor for, for inclusion and for unification. For the, for the recapturing of the best and most noble of human thoughts and for the higher spiritual vision and enlightenment that that brings. It's about what can be best about us if we um, listen to each other and learn from each other and don't divide and conquer. As the, the narrator says, the East is the home of the light. So, the East isn't a country, or it's not something geographical. No, it's the home of the soul, the one true universal destination, one that transcends all forms of time, place, space, race, and nation. It's that one inner pilgrimage where true hope and happiness lies. to the wisdom of podcast if you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general visit wisdomofpod.com and as usual we love to read your questions and comments reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on twitter at wisdom underscore pod our next episode Ibsen. <laughs> <laughs>